Welcome to Give Theory a Chance. In this episode, we are joined by Jeff Guin, an assistant professor of sociology at UCLA and author of the recently published Agents of God, Boundaries and Authority in Muslim and Christian Schools. Jeff discusses the inspiration he finds in the work of Charles Taylor, reflects on the value and challenges of reading philosophy as a sociologist, the importance of having friends, and introduces us to social imaginaries and subtraction stories. Hi, Jeff. Thanks for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. This is great. We are here today to talk about Charles Taylor. Now, I would say Charles Taylor is one of those those thinkers who is widely referenced in sociology, but perhaps not as widely read, although I guess I'll, I'll let you answer that question. But I'm wondering if you could just get us going by giving us an introduction to who Charles Taylor is or perhaps what he's known for. Yes. So Charles Taylor is a Canadian philosopher who shares a name with a dictator, but he is not a dictator. When you when you said shared a name, I really thought you were going the converse route, but you went you went the dictator route. So very different direction. He is also a founder of he has he is a man of many talents and skills. Charles Taylor, he's completely fluent in the classical Greek and Latin and then French and German as well as English. Uh, he's from Francophone Canada and uh, so his writing is sort of marked by these extensive footnotes and citations in original languages. He's one of the few sort of intellectual historians who's really good at German, French and uh, Anglophone intellectual history. Although a common criticism of him, ironically for a Canadian, he's, he, he doesn't pay enough attention to North American philosophy and certainly he doesn't pay attention to philosophical work outside of, of Europe. But within Europe he's very aware and so you know he is most famous in his early career for what's still considered the kind of standard biography of Hegel, intellectual biography of Hegel. But he really sort of made his mark in sociology with a book called Sources of the Self that uh, Craig Calhoun did a very long review of while he edited sociological theory. And then, so Alan Wolf blurbed in the back, also a noted sociologist. For sociologists, there is no more important philosopher writing in the world today than Charles Taylor. That's pretty high praise. I mean, some might say Searle or McIntyre or, or Habermas, but Taylor's up there. And, and the reason for that is because Taylor, throughout his career, has thought a lot about interpretation and has thought a lot about social life and how social life works. So he has a very famous essay called Interpretation and the Sciences of Man that was very influential for uh, Isaac Reed's recent book on interpretation in the human sciences. It's actually, I, I would assume, I don't know, I haven't talked to Isaac about it, that Isaac's title is actually a reference to Taylor. Gabby Aben's work is extremely influenced by Charles Taylor. If you know Charles Taylor, you can recognize quite a bit of it in Aben's work. Uh, and also Taylor is kind of moving in parallel with a lot of other philosophers who have been important for various social scientists, especially Michael Walzer and Alistair McIntyre. And uh, McIntyre has been very influential for people like Robert Bella, especially in Habits of the Heart. Oh, and Taylor's also been influential for Hans Joas, who has then been influential for people like Neil Gross and Ann Swidler. So Taylor is a pretty important philosopher and kind of a meta-sociological theorist. So he helps a lot of sociological theorists to understand how they theorize and what they're theorizing about. The other important thing about Taylor is he's a he's a really impressive mix of a kind of interpretive philosopher who writes about concrete things in the world and also a really stunning intellectual historian. And so his two probably most famous big books are Sources of the Self and A Secular Age, both of which are kind of vast philosophical intellectual histories 
the first of the self in modernity and the second of modern secularity. And for sociologists or religion like me, who are a little more theoretical, Secular Age is just a hugely influential and informative book. So you made the rather provocative claim that Taylor is perhaps the most important philosopher to modern sociology. Alan Wolf made that grant. I quoted him. <laughs> okay, okay. But yes. So you uh, you support the rather provocative I claim. I did not say I supported this claim. I simply repeated the claim, but yes. <laughs> okay, so you repeat this claim. Now, my follow-up question is, do you have a sense that Taylor is widely read in contemporary sociology, or is it rather that his influence is... Uh, confined to very particular pockets, like the pockets that you're mentoring, whether it's, you know, uh, studies of religion or explorations of the self. Yeah, I don't think he's especially widely read in sociology. I mean, but I don't think Searle is either, who's another very important philosopher who's thinking about things sociologists think about. I don't think Rorty, you know, there's a lot of philosophers who are doing things that I think would be interesting to sociologists that we don't have to read. I mean, you know, this kind of relatively high-level theory without any real empirical purchase, sometimes I think of it a little bit like chemotherapy, like a little bit will help an article and too much will kill it. Like there's just not a lot of incentive for us to be reading this stuff outside of our own intellectual interest. But I do think it can actually be extremely helpful and interesting. Let's make sure that we come back to that point, because I think it does tell us something very important about how you conceptualize the role of theory. Sure. But before we do that, I'm curious... How did you find yourself reading Charles Taylor's work, right? Was it assigned in a class? Did you just stumble upon it? I'm I think really curious so. About so that. my advisor doing my PhD, uh, Phil Gorski, is a sociologist who reads philosophy quite widely. And he's actually cited in Taylor's Secular Age. And he helped to organize a conference on Taylor's book, Secular Age, while I was at Yale. And I was also taking a class on secularity taught by Michael Warner in the English department. And Warner and Taylor are actually very good friends. So, and Warner's work is really excellent and also stuff that I would recommend sociologists read. He's done really interesting stuff on publics. So sort of developing a, a sort of literary letters writing public in the early American Republic. He has a book on that. And then publics and counterpublics, looking at a variety of kinds of publics, including queer publics. So he's a, he's a very prominent queer theorist as well. And his work was very influential in part of Taylor's secular age story. So, you know, there's all these kind of uh, interesting intersections. So I read Taylor's secular age, and I really was just stunned by the intellectual ambition. I mean, it's just not something we sociologists do anymore. He basically is telling the story of 500 years of North Atlantic history from a time Basically, he says, when we took for granted that God exists and religion matters to a time when believing in God is one choice among many, and to some extent even has to be explained and justified, at least among certain groups and communities. And so, you know, why is that? How do we get from point A to point B? And, you know, it reminds you of Weber's sort of grand ambition and Protestant ethic to get from when people said no to extra work to when people feel like they're in this iron cage of having to work all the time. And that kind of ambition to tell a long, sweeping historical story is fairly rare in sociology right now, and often for good reasons, because it's hard to get all the facts right. The, the local specialist will say you're wrong about this or that. But it's also very exciting and kind of intellectually thrilling. And so from that, I discovered Sources of the Self. And then from that, I discovered his, his Hegel biography, quite a few of his essays, he has an extremely famous essay on multiculturalism. 
a variety of books, but he has two books called Philosophical Papers, Philosophical Papers 1, Philosophical Papers 2, that have a lot of really uh, interesting and helpful essays. So, you know, I just kind of dug around and I, I really thought he spoke to me in a variety of really interesting ways, primarily because like Michael Walzer, like Alistair McIntyre, like some other people, he is loosely described as a communitarian. Now, I don't know if, if he would describe himself that way, nor I think would Walzer or McIntyre, but basically they come out of this tradition that some call neo-Aristotelian. Uh, it's really rooted in Taylor's teacher at Oxford, uh, Anscombe, G.E.M. Anscombe. And um, basically the idea is to sort of challenge in a moral philosophy the dominance of utilitarianism and deontology or, or Kantian philosophy and to really think about those philosophies, thinking about what's right in a given context, instead to think more about what's good. So what is the good life and what does the good life look like? And how do we think about the good life? And there tends to be much more of a prioritizing of the right thing to do. And that falls in line with the harm principle. And basically your only real job is not to harm people. And every individual person can have kind of a separate understanding of what the good life is for them. And Taylor doesn't really think that's true. Like, it's not that he thinks that's philosophically immoral to be liberal. It's that he thinks liberalism cannot provide an adequate understanding of itself, that liberalism is itself a kind of good life and a vision of the good that needs to be articulated. And so he's interested in sort of these robust understandings of the good and how people sort of think of themselves in moral terms. And so, you know, as someone who is interested in the sociology of morality, interested in the sociology of culture, he was very attractive. And he also thinks a lot about religion, not as anything especially important in a kind of ontological way or, or sort of nature of being way. I mean, he has no problem with atheists or and he's personally Catholic, but he has no problem with atheists or atheism or, or anything like that. But he's just interested in religion as part of the historical story and, and part of a way to account for how people have thought about meaning and morality throughout history, much in the way that Weber and Durkheim and Marx are. So so this this makes me think about how do we actually read theory? And what I mean by that is you're engaging with the work of this profound thinker who has an extensive catalog. How do you know when you've read enough, right? I mean, we're, we're in this discipline where we're responsible for mm -hmm. reading uh, our, our, our contemporary, uh, our colleagues who are doing research on topics similar to our own. Uh, we have to have a general idea of what people down the hall are doing, but then we're engaging with this philosophy as well. And, and these philosophers are engaging with the philosophers right. that were writing previous to them. They're engaging with the you know contemporary scholars that mm -hmm. they're in debate with. How do you know when, when you've done enough? Or, or can you simply say, you know, I'm focused on this two to three year period of Charles Taylor when he focused specifically on X, Y, and Z, and that's the stuff I care about, and that's the stuff I know would be great to read the rest of his work, but I, I simply don't have time. Yeah, you know, this is why I really think it's important to have friends, just in life, because you get sad, but also because they will read stuff for you. And I do, I cite a lot of Dewey, I cite a lot of, I don't cite as much Foucault anymore, but I used to cite a lot of Foucault, you know, so I definitely think about a lot of theorists. And, you know, I certainly don't know all of their work, let alone all of the secondary literature. And I think the main thing is to make sure it works for your argument. I don't think you need to 
It's not your job when you're applying a theorist to a sociological argument to be able to refer to everything. It's your job to be using that person correctly in the context you're using them. And so, you know, I really find asking a specialist to look at it or just talking over it to a specialist and saying, does this sound basically right? Like, am I, so I'm using Adam Smith in a project I'm working on now. And, you know, there's like a universe of Smith scholarship. Like I'll never be able to read all of it. But I've read moral sentiments pretty carefully. I've read some biographies. I've skimmed Wealth of Nations. I'll try to look at it more carefully, although I've read parts of it very, very carefully. And I'm going to show what I work on on Adam Smith to people who really know Adam Smith well, right? And I think that's sufficient for my application. And so we're not scholars of scholars. We're sociologists, and we're primarily interested in explaining the social world. And so the idea is that this theory is relatively transportable, or else it's not useful. And so if something is transportable, that means conceivably that it's small enough to be carryable, right? And so... You don't have to bring the whole thing with you to your project. That said, you don't want to do violence to theory or be utterly superficial with it. And so I think it's a case-by-case thing. But I certainly find having specialists look at it is really helpful. I don't actually trust the reviewers to see if I'm right, because my reviewers might actually have no idea about that theorist. So, you know, there's often a saying, let the reviewers do the work when you're sending something out to a journal. And I think that's actually kind of true. Like, I, I think a lot of people are way too perfectionist. And if something's basically good, but needs some more work, but you could go in a bunch of directions that conflict with each other, I think that's the point you send the paper out and you let the reviewers decide which of those directions matter or don't or whatever. But with something like this, you know, am I getting Charles Taylor right? Am I getting Dewey right? Am I getting Adam Smith right? Where my reviewers in sociology might not really know that much about this person, might not know as much as I do, for example, then, you know, I really do think you owe it just in terms of intellectual honesty to get your metaphorical math checked. And that's that's usually what I do. So I have a lot of friends in philosophy or political theory, and I'll sort of run an idea by them. And that's also what's great about social media is, you know, for as much as social media is terrible and I am always thinking about quitting it, I have a lot of friends on social media who are great at sort of really giving me quick feedback on just a quick question about a thinker. So you'll just put up a post saying, I'm using Charles Taylor to make argument X. Does that seem right to you? Yeah. And usually it'll be a direct message. But sometimes it'll be a sort of just open thing if I can't think of anybody who knows it. But, you know, nine times out of 10, it's a direct message or email where I'll just really quickly say, like, I think Charles Taylor says this and this and that is usable for this and this. Does that sound right to you? And sometimes they'll say no. Sometimes they'll say yes. Usually they'll say kind of, but make sure you cite this person who's like the expert on that in the secondary literature or whatever, right? And like, generally, I find that people who are experts on a theorist are actually really glad to see the theorist being used, and especially if their work is being acknowledged on that theorist. They just don't want it to be completely glib, right? And so it's like going to another country, right? You're never going to be fluent in the foreign language. But if you put a few months of effort into learning a little bit of German before you go to Berlin, people appreciate that. You know what I mean? Like we're not philosophers, we're sociologists, but we're trying to use 
philosophers to help us think about things, to do sociology. And so I think the good effort and sort of making sure you're on the right track is what matters. It's not becoming a scholar of that thing, which no one would expect us to be. Let's talk a bit more about what you've actually done with these ideas. So we can we can talk about your research. Sure. So how has Taylor directly influenced what you've yeah. done as because we're part of this field where the empirical work matters? I say a few things. So the first and probably most important is his concept of social imaginaries, which he develops later on in his career and the sort of precursors to that earlier. And, you know, the concept of imaginaries is not original to Taylor. Other people use it before. But really, his concept of social imaginaries, I would assume, I haven't talked to Gabby about this, but but I would assume Gabby Aben's book on the moral background is really rooted in Taylor, because I know he studied with Taylor at Northwestern. And so, you know, Taylor's concept of the social background is in some ways, and Taylor actually admits this in an earlier essay, not dissimilar from Bourdieu's concept of doxa, right? It's kind of the unspoken, often unaware assumptions that kind of drive not just our ideas, but our evaluations of ideas. So how we're able to think about the world and actually imagine the world, right? So the things that are even imaginable, let alone sayable or doable, are, are kind of a product of these social imaginaries. And so that's been very helpful for me. And one of the reasons that's been helpful for me is it's helped me to think about moral life as a pretty broad sphere of envisioning what the good life looks like for people what the kind of world we want to live in is, what a good person is, and how that is really broadly transferable. At that point, moral life is no longer about saints and sinners. It's about everybody, because everybody has a vision of the good they are trying to move towards, and you know, a basis of judging people who don't live up to those standards. So it really expands, you know, the sociology of morality out of the kind of right or wrong liberal model of morality that we tend to think of. Like, did you hurt someone or did you not hurt someone is just a very small element, actually, of that way of thinking about moral life. The other thing that's related to this that I was really taken by in the book Secular Age was his concept of the subtraction story. And uh, basically, this is his idea that kind of new atheists and others think that if you subtract away all the superstition of religion, you'll get to just real life, an actual reality. And he says, that's just a story. In fact, all social life is constructed by these imaginaries. And if you subtract away religious imaginaries, you just have nothing in the same way that if you subtract away various secular imaginaries, you just have nothing. And so part of the ambition in the book Secular Age is to show how secular life is just as constructed and just as dependent on these kind of imagined ways of being as any religious life. And so religion and secularism are not fundamentally different things. Now, of course, Taylor is very careful. And so in many ways, they are very different things, right? Like, belief in higher power, belief in something like magic or answered prayers. I mean, there's all sorts of ways in which religious life is quite distinct from secular life. But on a much deeper level, they both depend upon these social imaginaries, these things that help us to understand uh, how the world works and what feels to us as necessary in a human life and what feels to us as 
utterly lost in a human life if it weren't to exist. And so he gives this great example near the end of Sources of the Self that's fascinating about how weird it is that we now have what he calls an ethics of authenticity, that the most ethical thing you can be is authentic to yourself. And how that is a radical change from only a few generations earlier with the most ethical thing you could be is loyal to your parents or to your family. So if someone were to say today, I want to do what my parents tell me to do. It doesn't matter what I love. What matters is loyalty to my family and my community. Many of us would be judgmental of that person. We would say, why aren't you expressing your passion? Why aren't you being yourself? And so there's this fascinating and kind of paradoxical communal enforcement of individualism, which is really interesting. And he shows how that's all baked into these kind of social imaginaries. And, you know, that I think most of us would agree is, is a deeply sociological insight, which is why I think Alan Wolf is so excited about this kind of philosophy for sociologists. Thinking a bit more about how sociologists go about using theory, I'm wondering what you do with those concepts that you take from Charles Taylor. So is it that they, they simply inform your outlook on the world so they always guide your research? Or do you design, do you design your study to specifically try to answer questions about Charles Taylor's theories or, or how, how he would think the world would work? Are you testing out Yeah, that's a great question. I think it more informs what I'm interested in. Like, I don't know how often I cite, it's an interesting question, how often I cite Taylor. I don't know how often I actually do cite Taylor because I think he's always a few steps removed from what I'm really doing. But I probably cite a secular age a few times, but most other stuff I'm not citing. But it really informs how I think and how I kind of approach the world. So what I'm interested in and how I'm interested in it, right? Like the kind of work that I want it to do in terms of thinking about meaning and that kind of thing, I think is really driven by Taylor. But you're right. I don't know if I'm, it's not like Bourdieu or Foucault or even Dewey where there's a more straightforward mechanism that I can kind of use to explain a causal or sociological process. And this is you know, one of the things about sociology now is sociology, we don't really do sweeping theory anymore, right? Or sweeping historical change anymore. I mean, we're much more interested in very localized causal explanations or ethnographers sort of were describing, you know, and a very fine level of detail, certain how questions, certain mechanisms. I'm not actually sure how helpful Taylor is for that, but I think Taylor is really helpful for framing at a much broader level how we think about moral life. And then that will drive the kinds of questions I want to ask and the way I look at my data, even if I don't wind up needing to cite him because he's not the explicit person I'm using to explain the data. This is a bit of an abstract question, but I'm always curious, how much work do you have to do to make these different philosophers and yeah. cultural theorists work together. So so you brought up yeah. Dewey, you brought up Foucault, you brought up McIntyre, you brought up Taylor. Uh, I think you've brought up, uh, up a few other people. These are people who come from different intellectual traditions, even if there is some overlap. So do we have to do the work to show how they can fit together and how they're not actually incompatible? Or is it rather that, yeah. you know, we're sociologists and we're inspired by these people and we're just going to do that work on the ground? That's a great question, too. You know, I don't usually. I, I find that less is usually more. Even in a journal like Sociological Theory, you just can't do that much heavy lifting. So there's not 
someone like Emmerbeyer is very good at this like really impressive synthesis articles. But even his articles tend to be just comparing two people. So, you know, I have a project that brings together Dewey and Durkheim, and they're obviously from different traditions though Durkheim had written about the pragmatist and Dewey had read many of the people who influenced Durkheim and written about them himself. And so it's not that you can't put these people in conversation, but that's kind of a different project. You know what I mean? Like that's, that's a cool project, but it's a philosophy project and it's a project that won't get me tenure. And so the really key goal is, you know, you read these people either to kind of drive your intellectual capacity and make you more. I mean, for me, the point of reading a lot of social theory, of reading Foucault, of reading Gadamer, of reading Heidegger, of reading Taylor, of reading Searle, of reading Habermas, reading lots of different people, right? Right now, I'm reading a lot of Daniel Allen, who's a great classicist and, and philosopher. They just help you think bigger, right? They help you see things you didn't see before. Um, they help you notice things and notice problems you didn't recognize before as problems. And if you sort of stick to the normal science subdisciplines in sociology, you're not going to be able to see certain things that these people see outside, right? And so it's a very sort of Zimilian understanding of the capacity of the stranger, to kind of look at things from the margins and see in interesting ways. And I think a lot of the best sociology articles, Vasey's, Vasey's article is probably most famous on this, are importation articles, right? They bring in something from outside and sort of show how it can be applied to a contemporary sociology problem. And so, you know, I think that it's just really helpful to read widely. Ido and Stefan Timmermans, Ido Tavori and um, Stefan Timmermans' stuff on abductive inquiry is exactly about this, right? That you have basically just kind of a grab bag of possible theories and, and they sort of inform uh, how you're able to deal with data. Have you ever found yourself reading an article or a book where you, you, where you see the author bringing together a bunch of different theorists and you say to yourself, hey, you know what, there, there's a real tension between their ideas and their views of, of how the world works. And that needs to be, if not resolved, it, it, that tension needs to at least be acknowledged. I wish there was. That'd be fun. That'd be a fun problem in sociology. I mean, no, I can't. Generally, I see something where I think that's not really an accurate reading of Foucault, right? Or like, I'm not sure that's true about Bourdieu, right? Like, there's one theorist I think they're misreading. I just don't see enough situations where... I mean, I guess sometimes like people will try to like bring Latour and other people together. But usually when that's happening, the whole goal is the synthesis. And so they're often. I see. So, so that is the article itself. Yeah. And so they're aware of those problems that are trying to get around them. And that's the whole sort of central tension of the article. It's just too many. The problem is that you can't have that many moving pieces in an article. And so if you have empirical moving pieces, which most of us do. You can't also have a lot of theoretical moving pieces. And so most folks settle for one or two theorists and then quite a few empirical moving pieces and not even theorists, just like elements of a theory, right? Because if you're putting a lot of different elements of theory from different people together and you have a lot of empirical moving pieces, you're just, you're going to drop all the balls in the air. It's just not going to work. And so the articles that tend to be concerned about synthesizing theorists tend to not have any empirical data or have just kind of an empirical fleshing out section at the end. And then they're much more aware. Where you do see this kind of, I hesitate to call it sloppiness, but this kind of creative adaptation is in actual social theory, philosophy, some anthropological theory. Well, people will be like, 
here's Levinas, and here's Marx, and here's these guys, right? And people were especially critical of Richard Rorty for this. They thought Richard Rorty would just pull in whoever he wanted whenever he wanted. And, you know, I think there's pluses and minuses to that. I actually just wrote a paper using Harold Bloom's stuff on the anxiety of influence and what Bloom calls creative misreading. I think misreading can actually be very dangerous, but also very productive for scholarly work. And so... I don't know. I mean, I guess with all things, I'm, I'm ambivalent and can kind of see all sides, which is sort of a good thing for me and also a very annoying thing for me. And so I would say, yeah, on balance, it's better to represent the author well, if nothing else, out of respect to the author. But misreadings are often extremely productive and interesting. And so I would say that there's a kind of moral commitment to getting people right that should be honored. But at the same time, you can also just let it work out in the conversation. And, you know, if your people thought Rorty was incredibly wrong and then they corrected him about why and how he was incredibly wrong, especially about Dewey. So there's a tremendous amount of literature on Rorty being wrong about Dewey. But that wrongness was productive, right? And and Rorty got a lot done. And so, you know, it's it's I don't I don't know. I mean, I wish I could could give you a better answer to this. No, I, I think I think that's actually a really good answer. So I'll, I'll disagree with you there. Um, but let's let's return our focus to Charles Taylor for uh, the final question. And this is what I think is going to be the final question for every podcast that I record. But imagine that you are standing in front of a, a classroom or or at a conference hall, and you're speaking to undergraduate students, grad students, uh, you know, other professors in the discipline. And you are telling them why they should pick up some work from Charles Taylor and take the time to actually work through those ideas and make sense of them. Why that would be a worthwhile use of their time. So first off, I'm very pragmatic about anything. I don't actually think there's any one theorist everyone has to read, except for pragmatic reasons. It's very hard to not know Bourdieu in today's sociology, but that doesn't mean Bourdieu is actually necessary. It just means that you kind of have to know Bourdieu to get through reviewers the way the reviewers are now and the way the re reviewers are socialized. That said, you know, if you're asking for people I recommend you read, Charles Taylor would be near the top. And it would probably be because he gives you a really helpful way of thinking about the work of interpretation. In some ways, even better than Weber at the beginning of Economy and Society. And, and that's very, very good. And so I think Taylor's stuff on interpretation and on moral life, which his use of the word moral for us sociologists might just mean cultural, is just incredibly helpful at, at, at giving a kind of grounding, the most basic philosophical level of what it means to have meaning and to have that meaning be the thing we're studying, which for most of us is the case. And, and, and even I, I think I mean, that's obviously the case for those of us who do ethnography and interviews and qualitative work. But even for quantitative people, I mean, we're still thinking about meaning when we do surveys, right? I mean, that's tremendously important to make sure that the sentence we're putting in the survey means the same thing to us as it does to our respondents. And so the main takeaway for Taylor, especially some of his essays and the opening section of Sources of the Self and the uh, essay on multiculturalism, is about meaning and why meaning matters and how to think about meaning. And that's important for literally every social scientist. I guess the last thing I, I would add appropriate to multiculturalism and to a lot of the new directions and welcome directions sociology is moving in is well before a lot of other people, Taylor gave us a language to think about 
identity and community and why and how identity is especially important and salient in ways that relate to and are connected to inequalities of income and political power, but are not exactly the same as them. And, you know, increasingly we're aware of, of these questions and, uh, and Taylor was already thinking about these things a long time ago and points out how all the way back to Hegel, these have been ongoing concerns in the Western intellectual tradition that have kind of been lost by other scholars. That is a perfect place to end. So thank you again for joining us. Sure, of course. Appreciation goes to Jeffrey Gilbert for providing our theme music, undergraduate sociologists Beth Heberger, Alicia Rios, and Simone Graham for their help with the project, and most importantly, on behalf of me, Kyle Green, thank you for giving theory a chance. Thank you.